Motivation is a catch-all term. When psychologists use the term motivation, what they're really talking about is extrinsic motivation or ex goals that are external to us, sex, money, fame. Intrinsic motivation and the big five intrinsic motivators are curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, and mastery. And we'll come back to those in a second. They're also talking about goal setting. And properly done, there are three tiers of goals that need to be set. And they're talking about grit. Now, think about well, intrinsic and extrinsic motivation gets you moving, goals help you steer, and grit is what keeps you going on those days when the motivation just isn't there, right? When all the other stuff isn't working, grit is what keeps you going. And what the research shows consistently, six layers of grit that need to be trained. So when we talk about motivation, we're really talking about, you know, small, little bit of extrinsic motivators, figuring that one out, five big internal motivators, three levels of goal setting, six levels of grit. When you get it all together, when you get it right, because this is how our biology is designed to work, you go so much farther, so much faster, with so much less effort. Hello and welcome to the EverCoach podcast, the online destination for a coach that wants to create a positive impact in the world and make good money along the way. I'm your host, Ajit Nawalka, and every week, I'll bring you the world's best thinkers, coaches, trainers to share some of their best ideas to solve real client problems, live a prosperous life, and be an even better version of ourselves. Hello, hello. So in today's episode, I have a really, really special guest. His name is Stephen Kotler. I've been following Steven's work for years at this point. And if you haven't heard of him, you may have heard of the books that he has written, which is Stealing Fire or Rise of the Superman. He's written like 14 books in 14 years. There's been a many, but these were two that were highlights for me. And the book that he is releasing right about now is going to be the next highlight. I've got an advanced copy and I have absolutely loved reading it. The book is called The Art of Imp possible. The book really explores the idea of how can we achieve impossibles in our lives. So if you are somebody who is trying to build your coaching practice, trying to work with clients who are high performing clients, how to get more motivated yourself, how to really stack things to be motivated on everyday basis in your life, how to have more grit, how to have more flow, how to find more alignment in your passion and purpose. Stephen and I are going to explore all of those ideas in this conversation that we had absolutely love the conversation. You will absolutely love the conversation. The tons of tools that we talk about during the course of the conversation, the tons of free tools that we offer that you can simply go and download and, and look at that, which you'll also add to show notes that you can take advantage of as you listen to this podcast. Highly recommend the book that Stephen is just publishing called The Art of Impossible. Beautiful book, lots of uh, actionable strategies, very much that you can even take to your clients and help them realize their potential, help them find their passion, help them align with their purpose and really be able to build some solid grit to keep going and staying in a state of flow. Some very interesting ideas that I think you may not have explored before. So I'm excited to hear what you think of this conversation. Hey, listen, as you're listening to this conversation, and I know you will love it, I want you to hit that subscribe button because every single week I bring such interesting conversation for you so you can constantly 
explore more and more in your life and become a better and better coach and get really, really good at the business of coaching as well. So go ahead, hit that subscribe button. And now let's welcome Stephen Cutler. Welcome, Stephen. I am super excited and pumped to have you on our podcast today. It's great to be with you. So I've been amazingly taking a deep dive into The Art of Impossible, which is the book that is just coming out as we release this podcast episode. And I am so pumped to have a discussion around that with you because I feel this, and I've been a fan of your work, like I was mentioning previously, Stealing Fire, Rise of the Superman. These are one of my favorite books. I often refer to them. Um, and Art of the Impossible is an add-on to that collection to such an amazing guide. And it takes so much, so many steps further than uh, where you already discuss great ideas in Rise of Superman and, uh, and Stealing Fire. It takes many steps further than that. And I wanted to start the conversation with a very important distinction that you make right in the starting of the book, which talks about what does impossible even mean? And you talk about the capital I and the small I. Let's start the conversation there. So... The Art of Impossible is, I say this is a book, primarily lessons learned from people who have accomplished capital I impossible, which is that which has never been done. And this is what I've done over the course of right, my, most of my adult life is I've, in every domain you can imagine, sports, science, tech, business, take your pick. I've spent time with people who have accomplished things that we really thought were not going to be possible ever and used the tools of neuroscience and psychology to figure out why. Along the way, one of the things I discovered is nobody, at least nobody I met, and I don't, better or worse, I don't know anybody who's been in the room more times than I have when the impossible has become possible. Um, I've never met anybody who's accomplished the impossible who set out to accomplish capital I impossible. That's not where they started at all. Everybody I met started in the same place, which is, I think, where all of us start, which is accomplishing small I impossible, that which we believe is impossible for us. And the example I give in the book is I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio in the 70s. It was a blue collar steel mill town and I wanted to be a writer. I didn't know any writers. I didn't know how to become a writer. I had no clue what the path was. It was like I woke up one morning and looked at my parents and went, mom, dad, tonight I want to become an elf, right? Like it's mm -hmm. just, it was a fairy tale. That's a small eye impossible because there's no clear path between point A and point B and statistically bad odds of success. Other small eye impossibles, rising out of poverty, small eye impossible for sure. Uh, overcoming deep trauma, small eye impossible. Getting paid doing what you love is a small eye impossible. I think most of us actually have to really solve. Um, becoming world class at anything, I don't care what you do, small eye impossible. And I, you know, I always like to point out that, like, even if small eye impossible sounds daunting to people, I'd like to point out that. There at some point where you were 11, 12, or 13 years old and you wanted to kiss somebody, boy, girl, what didn't matter what, who, who it was, that how to get that first kiss, how to get that first relationship, I think for most of us, that's a small eye impossible that we start out accomplishing. And, and what I found is that the way to capital eye impossible, besides the fact that there's a very strict kind of biologically ordered sequence of events and things like that that we can get to, you accomplish small line possible after small line possible after small line possible. And one day, you don't, very few of the people I met actually even set out to accomplish small line possible. They had gotten so good at small or capital line possible that small line possible after small line possible, capital line possible is just like what's next. It's like eating breakfast. And there's a story that's worth kind of just emphasizing this point, and then I'll shut up, which is uh, first time I met Laird Hamilton, big wave surfer. This was back in the 90s. 
And Laird was 33 and I was 27 at the time. And uh, he was then pretty much considered the toughest guy on the planet, was doing the craziest impossible, surfing jaws. Nobody had ever seen anything like it. Um, it was completely beyond belief. Uh, nobody thought it was ever going to be possible. And I, and I was talking to him about it. He said, you know, Stephen, people see me on a 50-foot wave and they think, no way, man, dude, that is just impossible. I could never do that. I don't even know how you write. He said, you know, the funny thing is they see that and I'm 33 years old on that wave. What they didn't see is me at three years old on a three-foot wave, four years old on a four-foot wave, five years old on a five-foot wave. And they didn't see me last week on a 49 and a half foot wave. So they see the 50 foot wave and they think, oh my God, that's impossible. And I think, well, dude, Laird, I mean, last week it was 49 and a half feet. Today, are you really pushing that hard? So that's what it feels like from the inside. And I will tell you, every time I've been in the room, that's always what it looks like and feels like from the inside. So that's what I think of a small line possible. So Steven, tell me something because we've, we, like, like we were mentioning, we interact with a lot of coaches, people who are in the space of performance, in the, perform mm -hmm. in the space of helping people live better lives, more higher quality lives and so forth. But very often the person itself that is on the journey seems to not be able to take daily action. Like you said, 49 and a half foot wave to a 50 foot wave, which may seem like a small gain, but it's a huge gain as it compounds over time, right. small eyes leading to a big eye. What is it that is the driver that gets people to keep doing the small eyes so one day they can look back and go, oh, those many small eyes added up to a big eye? It's a great question. So, and, and we're talking to a lot of coaches, so everybody's going to be familiar with these concepts, but maybe not all of them put together in this way. Obviously, this is a motivation problem. So like, what is motivation? What does it matter? What are we talking about, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and how do we get a lot more of it for a lot less work? Because the, the other point is small eye impossible is hard, right? It's really hard. You're going to give everything you possibly have to small eye impossible. Um, and so you need motivation to get into the game. Peak performance, the conversation always has to start with motivation because it's what gets you moving, gets energy flowing. And motivation is a catch-all term. When psychologists use the term motivation, what they're really talking about is extrinsic motivation or ex goals that are external to us, sex, money, fame, intrinsic motivation. And the big five intrinsic motivators are curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, and mastery. And we'll come back to those in a second. They're also talking about goal setting and properly done. There are three tiers of goals that need to be set. And they're talking about grit. Now think about well, intrinsic and extrinsic motivation gets you moving goals, help you steer and grit is what keeps you going on those days when the motivation just isn't there, right? When all the other stuff isn't working, grit is what keeps you going. And what the research shows consistently six layers of grit that need to be trained. So when we talk about motivation, we're really talking about, you know, Small, little bit of extrinsic motivators, figuring that one out, five big internal motivators, three levels of goal setting, six levels of grit. When you get it all together, when you get it right, because this is how our biology is designed to work, you go so much farther, so much faster, with so much less effort. And I'll stop there. We, we, we let you steer into the next question. No, that's, that's beautiful. It actually takes exactly where I wanted to go which is motivation. Like you said, motivation is a big piece amongst 
the four pieces that you cover as, as I think the, the, the four parts of achieving impossible things or doing impossible things. And I love that idea of motivation because I feel that is one of the things that a lot of our students definitely struggle with, mostly because small things are hard. Small eyes are very, very difficult. So let's dive a little bit further into the, in the motivation and staying motivated uh, using these factors that you just mentioned. And if you could also kind of give examples as you explain these these factors, because um, I feel a lot of times it is difficult to keep doing what you're doing. And so it's important to kind of understand these factors slightly more deeply. And of course, the book covers a lot of it in very much detail, and it's beautiful. Uh, but if you could go a little bit yeah, uh, for in sure. that direction. Yeah. So what the science shows is from a motivation perspective, and this is not surprising to anybody because Abraham Maslow said basically the same thing. You got to start with extrinsic motivation because safety and security is such a powerful driver. And if we don't have safety and security, if like the things that cause us safety and security, you, there's just too much anxiety. It blocks performance. There's no way to even start tapping into intrinsic motivation. So what does that mean? Well, uh, this is uh, Daniel Kahneman's research. He found that um, basically, people need enough for basic needs with a little left over for spare cash. So on a household basis in America 10 years ago, so adjust this however you want, it was about $75,000 per year per household. And um, no, I don't actually even know how many people were in that household. So I can't, I would assume, you know, two and maybe a kid kind of thing. But right. So I, I, the point is, you're paying your rent, you're paying your bills. You can go out to dinner once a week on Saturday night and you can buy each other birthday presents and take vacations every now and again, right? Like that's all you really need. Once that's taken care of, your interest is performance, productivity, those kinds of things. Um, extrinsic motivators are still good, right? Like we will go far out of our way for money, sex, and fame. But if you're really after intrinsic or if you're really after performance goals, you need internal motivation. They always start with the same place. The core of all intrinsic motivation is curiosity. It's the basic fuel for human motivation. In fact, when we talk about the system that motivates human beings, it's literally known as the seeking system, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, a, it's an independent system in, in the body. Predominantly, it's driven by the, the neurochemical dopamine. But it, it, is, it is our, I care, oh my God, what's that? What's that? What's that? That's our basic driver. Curiosity is meant to be built into passion. When people talk about passion, it gets very, very mystified often. Um, and the, the, the spiritual community does a really good job of mystifying this word. <laughs> Worth talking about why passion, purpose, curiosity, all these things matter on a really basic level. All of them matter because when you're dealing with performance, you don't have a lot to work with. You have your action, the thing you have to do, right? If you're writing a book, you've got to write the book. If you're playing baseball, you've got to play baseball. If you're giving a speech, you've got to give the speech. And then there's your focus. Where am I putting my attention? And what am I ignoring? And how much energy am I spending on my focus and my attention? And how much energy am I spending on, right, on my action? Those, that's it. And if you put your focus and attention on one thing and the same action, do it over and over and over again, what do you get? A habit. And then you can perform the action without having to think about it so much, less energy. That's the end result we, we're aiming for. That's pretty much the performance spectrum, right? There's not a whole lot else going on. And you can't do a hell of a lot about the action because 
we know we can perform an action and we will slowly get better over time. That's learning. We've all experienced it. And while there are ways to speed up your rate of learning, as a general rule, the path to mastery is the path. You can only work as fast as you can work, right? You can tune up your tools a little bit, but you're sort of stuck with whoever you are and, you know, whatever you are. And, you know, if you're great at sports and the task is baseball, fantastic. But if you're great at sports and the task is macrame, you've got a problem. And you know what I mean? It doesn't, (laughs) that doesn't change. So the big deal is on attention. Why does curiosity matter? Why does passion matter? We get focused for free. That's the big deal. You think about something you're curious about. You don't, you pay attention to it automatically. You don't have to work to do it. If you think about, think about romantic passion, right? First time you fell in love, could you stop thinking about the person you were involved? No, it happened automatically all the time. That's why this matters. So the intersection of multiple curiosities, curiosity, a little bit of energy. We could talk about biologically what it is, but it's a little bit of energy. Passion, which is the intersection of two or three or four curiosities. You ask, for example, I'll give you one. Um, Now you're really cooking. So let's say I'm really curious about football. I love American football and I'm really curious about nutrition. That's another thing. Okay, well, where would they intersect? Well, I would all, first thing I'd always tell you is be more specific. Try to be as specific as possible when you're doing this work. But well, okay, football is an energy intensive sport. What are the nutritional requirements for football? That's the intersection of two curiosities. You can find a place where three or four of your curiosities really intersect. And there's a formula for how to do this and play around there and everything else. And that's in the book. And that becomes, that's passion. Once you have passion, you want purpose. Purpose is literally just your passion attached to a cause greater than yourself. Again, a lot of mystical reasons for purpose, but at a performance level, purpose is literally, it's more feel-good neurochemistry. It's more reward neurochemistry. It's more of that seeking system, giving you neurochemicals to drive you forward. So even the passion or purpose feels very altruistic from a performance perspective, it's actually quite selfish. So even like, you know, and purpose is literally taking the intersections of your multiple curiosity, attaching it to something greater than yourself that you really care deeply about. Say your big passion is I want to end world hunger. And where you started was the intersection of football and nutrition, right? Now, you, now you've got, okay, you're flying around there and you've attached to a cross greater than yourself. Now you've got purpose. Once you need purpose, what do you need next? Autonomy, freedom to pursue your pur- purpose. And we actually know exactly at this point how much autonomy you really need to pursue that purpose. It's not a hell of a lot. Again, details in the book. But once you have purpose, or once you have purpose, you need autonomy. Once you have the autonomy built into your schedule to go after that purpose, what do you need? Mastery. The skills to go after that purpose. And these are all big drivers, right? Mastery is the great feeling we get when we love getting better and better and better and better at the things we do. And okay, now you've got mastery. What do you need next? goals because you need to know exactly where I'm going to go and you need a mission level goal for your life. Then you need a series of high hard goals, which are all the sub steps that will feed into your mission level goal. Then you need a series of clear goals, the daily action steps you're going to take today. Again, as you said, there's lots of details. This is how you make a clear goals list. This is why high hard goals work and matter and how to set blah, blah, but that's the order and that how that works. And then, as I mentioned, there are six levels of grit that you want to train. And there's an order to how they get trained. Um, And that's essentially what you're going to turn to as, you know, there are going to be days that the passion doesn't work and the, you know, all this stuff. And if you get it all right, as a bonus, you'll start living your life in such a way that produces a tremendous amount of flow. 
and flow is the turbo boost, right? Flow is the is optimal performance and flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. And it turns out curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, and mastery um, and clear goals are all flow triggers. Now you've got to think of flow triggers. Some of them are big, huge rockets that sometimes will rocket you into flow, but usually the best way to get into flow is try to create situations where four or five of these triggers are present at once. The point is, if you get all this going in the right place, you've got all, that's the motivation suite, and then you're getting flow on the back end. Now flow, not only because it feels so amazing, it rewards the motivation. Like I always say, it's, you, we always want to do this in this particular sequence. One is our, from curiosity into passion into purpose. That's how the, the neurobiologically we're wired for it to work this way. This is sort of, there are, there's, there's a lot of if-then statements built into, for example, goal setting. And it, you can't really set good goals until you know who you are, what your values are, what your passion is, what your purpose is. It doesn't work as well for a bunch of biological reasons. Same thing, right? Um, but I, I like to start, you know, the good news about all the passion, purpose, the intrinsic motivators and the goal setting is it's going to start producing flow. You actually want that flow to start showing up before you start training some of the harder grit skills because grit without flow is miserable, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you're, if you're not periodically dropping into flow, flow is what redeems the suffering in a sense, mm -hmm. right? Flow is what makes the path to impossible a lot more fun, a lot easier, a lot more meaningful, right? A lot more rewarding, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And like grit without flow is burnout. Mm. So, right. Thank you. Thank you for the distinction. I think that's, that's, I, I don't think anybody has actually ever said how grit could actually hurt uh, as well. If you're not oh, yeah. rewarding grit yourself with, yeah, in the no, process. Yeah, grit, grit without flow is, and it's, it's interesting. Fear is a huge intrinsic motivator, right? Huge. We think about how much focus you get for free, but the way we just talked about roughly 11 things or whatever, six grit, five uh, intrinsic motivators and three goal setting things. So it's actually 14. You don't start working with fear until step 13. And there's a reason. Fear is an amazing motivator. It's a, it's a peak performer's best friend, but only after you've layered in a bunch of stuff. Because if you try to work, start working with, like if the first thing you do is come into peak performance and we don't work on like extrinsic motivation or intrinsic motivation, we're like, okay, let's, let's, let's learn how to confront risks and really go. Maybe if you were a huge risk taker and you're hardwired that way and you're really type A aggressive, that might be the right path for you. But as a general rule for most people, that's not how our biology works. And if you start there, it ends up being demotivating and you derail the whole system. So there's an order to all this. Um, none of it is, and I, even with the grit stuff, I always want to say, if you made it to adulthood because of our biology. There are exceptions here. We can talk about them, but you felt already as bad as you're possibly going to feel. That's the other thing people don't realize about these big, high, hard goals going for the impossible is it's not going to hurt any more than it already does. Like mm -hmm. because of emotional set points, because of our biology, unless you're dealing with chronic unemployment or the death of a small child, the two things that actually can drive low set points lower, literally you've already experienced like light. It doesn't, it can't get harder because of the way our biology is, it can get more constant. You can have more of those bad days in a row, perhaps, but it, the actual pain, suffering of our experience, chances are you've already been through the worst that life is going to throw at you feeling-wise. Beautiful. 
that's that's very important also for people that are in our community because a lot of our community members are like i said are in the profession of helping other people which sometimes is it's a little bit of a pull because a newer industry people are still getting aware of what a life coach even does and so the business of it itself is a little bit more complicated while the work itself is complicated because like you mentioned just this book alone talks about 14 different things and it focuses on one way of looking at performance which is a very powerful way of looking at performance but then there is spirituality and you know the the all that complexity that we can keep getting into uh so so it's very important what you just said and thank you for sharing that i think it's an important thing to hear at the flow research collective we obviously uh we coach people right so like i always want to point out to people that um most things are like this but especially in coaching as you know there are two tiers of impossible maybe three first tier is like learning enough to even get into the goddamn game right? Tier one, tier two, impo- and that's an impossible. To be really good at this, to really be able to help other people in a meaningful way, that's a hard skill. A lot of people want to open that door. Very few people are really world-class at it, first level. The uh, second level is what you just brought up, which is, is so frustrating. when you get As you're getting paid uh, for a living, I remember this as a writer too. There's a long phase where you're like, holy crap, I want to write but I'm spending all my time on the business of being a writer and not being a writer. I'm spending all my time on the business of being a coach, and not being a coach. That's level two. You got to climb. And then you get to level three, right? Which is when you're actually doing most of the actual, the work you think you want to do. And I will say, I think this is true as a writer. I think it's true as a coach, a little bit of careful what you pray for on that one. Everybody wants to get to that level, but like for a writer, you get to that level. You go from having like, bosses, editors, publishers to having fans. Like at least you can have rational conversations with your bosses and your editors and your publishers, your fans with this amorphous thing out there that want you to do a certain thing and you're not quite sure what it is. With coaching, you get to where you want to be and suddenly you're holding a lot of people's lives in your hands, right? And that's a tremendous amount of weight and responsibility. So I always say that like, you know, the thing about the impossible, we want it really bad and you can have it really bad but know that it also, the view on the inside is always different than on the outside. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to dive a little bit towards the conversation and motivation a little bit more. And the, and the reason why I wanted to do that is, is like you said, there are levels of, of progress in your performance and the levels of uh, motivation that is required at different stages of your careers. Or maybe it's the same level of motivation. That might be the wrong word that I'm using, but it's a different kind of motivation, if I may, uh, where sometimes you're driven by intrinsic motivation, like you said, and then totally. so extrinsic yeah. motivation, and then you get to intrinsic motivation. How do you cultivate intrinsic motivation? Most of our audience can figure out how to get paid enough to, you know, take care of lives. Uh, that's 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 an assumption that that we made, and it seems like that is a correct assumption on our part. But then becomes the challenge where they need to get to, or they want to get to the the level two, level three, uh, where so one uh, like the recipe doesn't change because the biology doesn't change, right? I say very early in the art of impossible that peak performance is. Nothing more or nothing less, I guess, than, than getting your biology to work for you rather than against you. That's really all we're talking about. And that biology is a limited set of skills, right? The whole book covers motivation, which you know is a skill set, a bunch of things. Learning, which is, again, a skill set, a bunch of things. Creativity, creative problem solving, again, a bunch of things. And flow. And the equation is really simple. Motivation gets you into the game. Learning keeps you there. Creativity is how you steer. Flow is how you turbo boost the whole 
once you're in, it doesn't, you, you, it doesn't stop. You know what I mean? Like curiosity is something that you, you have to constantly, you got to feed your curiosity on a daily basis. You have to feed your passions. You got to feed your purpose. You got to feed autonomy and mastery. The, the rule book doesn't change. What happens is like at, people forget that like once you set up the system, it, it doesn't, you still need to feed the system constantly. And there are ways to do that. A lot of that is sort of covered. How do you, I think that one of the ways you, you, you stay super motivated is you move into the lifelong learning, the next bit of it, because that is what feeds curiosity and feeds passion and feeds purpose and, and, and drives you towards mastery. So I think that's a lot of the recipe. Um, and a lot of the recipe is also about flow. So if you're finding yourself wobbling, like if you've already, you're getting paid for doing what you love and you just want to get to that next level and you're trying to solve that issue and you're having trouble, I would look at one, I would look at some of the learning stuff, right? Are you feeding your curiosity enough? And there's specific ways to do that, that sort of stuff. And how much flow is your life producing? Is your work producing? Are you uh, actively pursuing? So in flow research, there's something called your primary flow activity. This is whatever that thing is that you did as a kid that dropped you into flow, right? Maybe for you, it was dancing to hip hop. For me, it was skiing. You know, some people's riding horses or painting or giving speeches or macrame or collecting dinosaur bones or it doesn't matter. But you know what I'm talking about because you did it as a kid or you did it as a young adult. And almost every time you did it, you dropped into a really deep flow state. That's a primary flow activity. And most people, as we get older and become adults and all that stuff, that's what we stop doing, right? Our job, I don't have time to surf. I'm so busy at work or I don't have time to surf because the family needs me. And it turns out that's a disaster. It's a disaster for a lot of reasons. It's a disaster because flow resets our nervous system, so it automatically flushes stress hormones out of our system, which, and we know all the performance benefits there. It massively boosts creativity all the time. It's got all kinds of these deep wellness, well-being, life satisfaction, but all the neurochemicals that show up in flow um, really drive motivation learn they're what make life worth living and the most important thing is and this is what people miss flows of focusing skill essentially it's a kind of way to so if you go take monday off and go skiing you it's going to give you and get into flow you have a greater chance of getting into flow at work on tuesday wednesday thursday friday so you're going to get more flow from that but it's also going to do all the other things also by the way the heightened creativity this is not my research this comes out of harvard but they found that Flow is a huge boost in creative problems. I was like 400 to 700%, depending on whose study and whose numbers you're looking at. But what they figured out at Harvard is that heightened creativity, the innovation, will outlast my flow state by a day, maybe two. So again, go, to, go skiing on Monday, your chance of getting into flow the rest of the week at work go way up. So does the creativity and the like lowered anxiety that the flow state provided. So some of this is you may like, you may have all the motivation you need. You just may be lacking. Your life may not have the right rewards anymore built in because of how serious we get about our career. I always tell people, and this was so counterintuitive for me. And I didn't, this, and I, and I, by the way, I always say personality doesn't scale. So what works for me is probably never going to work for you for a lot of biological reasons, but I will give you an example. When I, one of the biggest changes in my life 
over the past 15 years. And people look at the past 15 years of my life and they're like, oh my God, you wrote almost a book a year. How did you do that kind of stuff? You were so motivated. You were so driven. You should also know that I went from skiing, my core passion, like 10 days a year to skiing about 50 or 60 days a year because the amount of flow it provided during that same period. That was one of maybe the single most important thing I did in that period. Um, also because anxiety is such a blocker to performance and flow gets rid of all the anxiety. And, you know, I run hot <laughs> to simply put, I just run hot. That's just how I'm wired. So I have to, you know, exercise mindfulness, gratitude. These are great. They'll lower my anxiety, but I need my primary flow activity to really help me reboot. That's beautiful. I love how you are relating also an activity that doesn't necessarily is not related to your work. Like skiing is something that gets you into flow. It's not what you earn a living from. You write and you coach and you train and, and so forth, but it's not the primary earning activity, which- At all. Kind of, you know, yeah. And I always tell people, by the way, mm -hmm. the general rule, you don't want to work in your primary flow activity. You want to work mm -hmm. in your secondary flow activity. Now, this is not across the boards for everybody, right? But there are, you know, most people, you know, I, I, I came- early, I know a lot of people in the action sports industry. And I, I just remember so many people becoming whitewater river guides, right? Mm -hmm. And they loved rivers and they loved rapid. And then they became guides because they thought that was, I'll get paid. They absolutely hated it. They couldn't stand dealing with people. It was the worst job for them. Most of these people were on rivers because they're introverts. They're quiet. They don't want to be around the gym. So the worst situation possible for them was, right? General rule. I once tried leading a flow workshop while skiing most miserable thing I've ever done in my life. I was like, who the fuck are these people? Why are they interviewing when I skiing? What do you, why? I don't want to talk to you. I want to ski now. Get out of the way, right? It's terrible. Writing is my secondary flow activity. Meaning I sit down to write, I go skiing. I'm going to drop into flow 80 to 90% of the time. It's just sort of automatic. And we could talk about why and the triggers and all that stuff with writing. It's about 60 to 70% of the time that I'll get into flow, right? So it's a, that's, that's my secondary flow activity. We usually have, like other ones beyond that, but it, we usually have a primary and a secondary. And I, I think you want to sort of think about working in your secondary and keeping your primary as a play activity. So that is amazing, Stephen. I don't think you realize how many people would be thinking counterintuitive to that. Because I know I, I would counterintuitively think I should work in my primary flow activity. Well, as you're saying, no, it would probably take away from your power. Again, you said it is subject to the person, but uh, but it's, it's very interesting, the, the difference that you just suggested. Yeah, I mean, some people are different, right? Like for some people, it really works like all, and it's not the activity, right? It's the business of the activity. That's what usually kills people, right? Mm -hmm. I Magazines, by the way, I, I was a long-form magazine journalist when I started out. They were my favorite thing in the world. Like growing up, mag, how do you escape a blue-collar steel mill town in the 70s before there's cable television? Magazines. Right. So magazines were my like window into, oh, this is culture. This is the world. This is art. This is fashion. This is cool. Right. Like that was, and I came to like, yeah, th they don't hold the magic they used to. You know what I mean? Like I used to think a newsstand, a magazine stand was the most magical place in the world. And it's just not anymore. Right. That tends to be what happens when you, you know, work in it. You see how the sausage is made and it, you see what's required and it's not. Right. Suddenly it's not the it's there's just too much in there, you know, too much for it to be able to be that relaxing all the time. Awesome. Yeah, it's no, I, and I think it's important also because it just not knowing what you just said 
or now knowing what you just said, I think it's important uh, data point for somebody to make a decision of then going, do I, would I actually love doing it? And I think somewhere in the book, I think you mentioned is to go and try and see if this passion that you're pursuing yeah, there's a it's whole thing that you want to work on. Yeah. I always tell people, so the way our learning, inherent learning software is built basically is the brain likes to learn a little bit at a time, like 20 minutes a day, half hour a day. And then we need to sleep on it, process the stuff unconscious, like Delta wave sleep literally consolidates memory and skills and things like that. And so, you know, especially today, a lot of people really go getters. They'll, they'll just dive into a blah, blah, blah. And that's fine if you're cramming for an exam, but you know, I always say with passion, be slow, be careful, be cautious, start, figure this out. You don't want to be two years into your passion to go, oh, dude, it was just a phase. Do you know how demotivating that is? Do you know how bad and awful that applies, right? Like having to start over a couple of years, you don't want to be there. So you want to play in these spots, figure out what they can play in these spots and do it very, very slowly. The other thing I want to say to people, because this is... There's a lot of bad advice about this one out here. Um, Goal setting and passion. Don't talk about this stuff until after it's cooked for a while. The science of goal setting has changed. We used to believe that talking about your goals out loud was really good for goal setting. It turns out it's terrible. And this is, I noticed this. I see this a lot when I work with both millennials or or Gen Z. They lead with their passion and purpose. Hi, my name is Shelly, and I'm here to save the world. And honest to God, that's it's literally so terrible for performance. It's the worst idea possible. When we talk about like these passions or these big goals or these mission-level statements before we've actually started to really contribute to them, and what, what happens is the brain releases the dopamine that you would normally get for striving, for seeking that, that thing, just by talking about it. And what happens is then you don't have the very motivation you need to go get the thing. So it ends up being demotivating. So you see in, when we talk about this and for you, for your listeners, if this is stuff that you guys are curious about, we took the beginning of the book, which was called essentially the passion recipe. How do you turn curiosity into passion, passion and purpose? And we made it an interactive uh, workbook or worksheet for anybody. www.passionrecipe.com. It's out there. You don't even have to buy the art and boss, but you can just, Get there and, and check that out if you want. Um, figure out how to how to do all this and how it works for you. But as you said, play at those intersections for a while and do this slowly and do it quietly until you get to the right stage where talking about this stuff actually serves your motivation. That's amazing, Stephen. Stephen, we can talk about this stuff for hours at end. And I know this is about the time that we reserved for this conversation. So I'm going to suggest everybody, and I'm going to do a whole spiel on Out of Impossible, give my own show notes, uh, my, my book notes of what I thought was amazing and why everybody should get it. But is there a minute or, or something where people can go? Where is it? What's the link? Where should oh, we yeah. check out Out of Impossible? Uh, www.theartofimpossible.com. Very simple for everybody. And uh, there's a ton of stuff. There's the there's trailer, book trailer, a bunch of stuff. Go all the way to the bottom, by the way. I don't know why it's all the way at the bottom. I didn't build the website, but there's a blogs tab. And the blogs are, there's even more information in the blogs and they're fun and things like that. So a bunch of stuff there. StephenCotler.com will get you me. PassionRecipe.com will get you that for free. Um, and uh, yeah, one other thing, FlowBlocker.com, because we talked a little about flow and we didn't give anybody any flow advice. 
So except a primary flow activity, one other thing, if your you know, workflow is important to you, most people have a primary flow blocker. There's about six major ones. We just built a diagnostic. Again, free. Those are the two, the passion recipe and the flowblocker.com. We just thought were good things for the world. So we're giving them away. Oh, thank you so much, Stephen. So definitely check out flowblocker.com, passionrecipe.com, theartofimpossible.com, stevecotler.com. I think all of them are wonderful resources. Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, it's it my been pleasure. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. Wasn't that one of the most interesting conversations you've heard recently around the topic of performance, around the topic of flow, around the topic of crit, around the topic of motivation, and how useful were each of these strategies as we discussed during the course of the conversation. Hey, listen, there's a lot more in this book. We could barely scratch the surface. We only had about 30, 40 minutes to have this conversation. And so I really invite you to explore these ideas further. Go over to theartofimpossible.com and you will be able to get the book with a bunch of bonuses. So it's amazing. It's awesome. You're going to love it. We have also put all the links that we talked about during the course of this conversation below in the show notes. So go ahead and take the advantage of those free tools that we talked about. Take the advantage of the book that is just coming out. It has fresh research, really actionable steps, and also take the advantage of all the bonuses that Stephen is offering right now. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and submit a review for us. Give it a five-star rating because your ratings and your reviews help us understand that we are doing a good job. So thank you very much for the people and individuals who constantly have been sending us reviews and posting their ratings to the podcast. Thank you very much appreciated. I very much personally appreciate it. I would love to get a few more for this specific episode because this was so good. Thank you so much for listening in. This is Ajit Navlaka and you're listening to this on the Evercoach Podcast. I am your host, Ajit Navlaka, and every week on the Evercoach Podcast, I will bring the world's best thinkers, coaches, trainers to share some of their best ideas to solve real client problems, live a prosperous life, and be an even better version of ourselves.